Open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 12. The most vital elements of infrastructure for a society have now been completed in the reviving country of Israel. It has taken just under 100 years for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah to unfold. If you have not written this in your Bibles, you may want to write down 538. That is the year that Cyrus gave his decree that is recorded in Ezra 1, 538 BC. We are now at 444 BC, almost 100 years later, as Nehemiah 12 unfolds. That means for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which some people believe were compiled by Ezra, one author, perhaps as one original book or perhaps as two, Nehemiah writing his journals, Ezra writing his journals. But over 90 years, these two books took place. And during that time, we have the infrastructure for society. The infrastructure had to be rebuilt because they were deported. They were taken out of their country. It began in 725 B.C., 725 BC is when Israel was taken from her country. That's the northern kingdom. 725 BC, Israel is deported. And then in 610 BC, Judah is deported for the first time or the first group of exiles are taken out of Judah in 610 BC. The last group is taken out in 586 BC. The last group is taken from Judah. And then in 538 BC, as I've just mentioned, the book of Ezra opens up. Ezra is not even alive yet, but Ezra records something that happened before he was alive. When Ezra chapter 1 shows us the return to the country of Israel to rebuild the temple. Ezra then returns later on and in the year 445 BC, Nehemiah hears about the temple being rebuilt, but the walls are not. So what we have here is a downward spiral as Israel falls into judgment. They have been warned by God over and over by the prophets. The northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the north, gave no interest to repentance. But the southern kingdom gave the very smallest amount. They were given an extra 100 years or 140 years But eventually, even the southern kingdom failed completely. After 70 years, as was prophesied in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. The 70 years ended, counting from here to here. From 610 BC, the first deportation of the southern kingdom until 538 when the decree was given. And some people, by the way, count this from 608 BC so that it was exactly 70 years. I'm... 
estimating these numbers. This number is exact, that number is exact, and this number is an estimate. I'll underline the estimates. Estimate, estimate, estimate. Exact, exact. From historical sources. Now, what has happened is this country went through a massive relocation. They were conquered militarily. They fought with the kingdom, the empire of Assyria. An empire is a collection of countries. That is one country that conquers country after country, gobbling up its wealth and taking to itself all of the power and honor that it can. The Assyrian empire attacked Israel. That's not the country of Syria. Syria is a small country to the north of Israel. Assyria was a massive empire. Assyria conquered Israel after having conquered many nations to the east of Israel. They conquered the north because they were in the northeast. And that empire conquered Israel. That empire fell to what empire? Babylon. And so 100 years later, when Judah's time expired, we have the empire of Babylon. Babylon was much larger than Assyria, and it conquered Judah in 610 or 608 BC, and then again several other times until the final one in 586 BC. Now, here's why I'm telling you all of this. It is very rare for a country to be conquered, at least in the ancient days, and retain its language, its culture, or its national identity. Have you ever read Deuteronomy and heard about the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Girgashites, the Hittites? Those countries don't exist anymore because Israel went to the funeral of all of its neighbors. But when Israel died, it came back to life. That in itself is amazing. How did this happen? We can look and say it happened over 90 years, but the fact that it happened at all is proof that the Bible is written by God. Because the Bible is the story of the Jews. How in the world could there ever be a Jewish nation that came out of obscurity and stayed alive after empire after empire destroyed it, and yet there's a language that still exists? How did that happen? And we're going to go into the book of Esther next, Lord willing. Because Esther happens between these two. And in the story of Esther, there's another king who tries to destroy this nation again. Over and over, this nation is attacked. But they just can't die. How do you explain that? How do you explain that all of those prophecies keep coming true? How do you explain 70 years between these two as is prophesied by Jeremiah? Do you know how some people do it? They do, <clears throat> they do it this way. They're tricky and deceitful. They claim that Daniel, they claim that Daniel and Jeremiah were written down here, say, 400 
BC. Daniel and Jeremiah. Why do people lie and put Daniel and Jeremiah down here at 400 BC? Because both Daniel and Jeremiah prophesied 70 years and then Israel's going back. And both Daniel and Jeremiah prophesied about the destruction of Babylon. And Isaiah prophesied about Cyrus. So they try to put Isaiah down here with Daniel and Jeremiah as well. They try to say, oh, hundreds of years after it happened, some guy, he called himself Daniel. And he pretended to be living back here. But in reality, Daniel lived right up here. And Jeremiah lived right up here. That's when they were alive and they wrote before it happened and then it happened. And this is too much for the unbelieving mind. He is forced to. Or what, what can he do with his ancient text? Let's just pretend they lived after the fact. Well, forget the fact that there's no historical evidence. They just put them down there because it's wishful thinking. There's no historical evidence to put Daniel and Jeremiah there or Isaiah. All the evidence points back to this time period. And the Bible points back to it too, which is by far the strongest evidence. Now, having said all of that, here's the point that we're getting around to. All of this happened to Israel as a consequence for their sin. They paid more than they ever thought they would have to pay, which is a lesson by itself. And if I were not trying to finish this book before Mugobe leaves... I might have stopped and done a whole sermon on chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. This amazing story was overwhelmingly painful for what country? It was terribly painful. It was humiliating. It, it took all the wealth of the country for generations, starting back here in 725, the whole way down here to 445. The people are still desperately poor. That's how many years? 280 years. They've been desperately poor and ravaged by military bans and crime for hundreds of years. All because they said, I refuse to bow my knee to God. And right there is the lesson for us. Anytime we find that God is speaking... We must obey or we will pay the price. Don't think you can outwit God. You will pay the price and it will be more than you want to pay. The Jews now are saying, why didn't we know? This is why they wept back in chapter nine and chapter eight. They were weeping because they didn't realize how steep the price would be. And now, now down here at 445 BC and uh, 444 BC, now they realize For 280 years, we've gone through this horrible pain. Why didn't we listen? And they weep. And that's when Nehemiah stands up and says, do not weep. You've paid. You've gone through it. Now the temple is rebuilt. May the joy of the Lord be your strength. With that as our background, open your Bibles to Nehemiah 11. I said Nehemiah 12, but let's look at two verses quickly in Nehemiah 11. Nehemiah 11 verses 1 and 2. And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one out of 10 to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to live in Jerusalem. 
Why would they have to take votes, cast lots to live in Jerusalem? Because imagine what's happened to that capital city. The walls have been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. There's still no sanitation. There's no roads. There's no businesses. There's no houses. You've been living in abject poverty. Do you want to go to that? Many of the Jews have been coming back. Remember, the Jews began coming back in 538 BC. This is 90 years later. Many of the Jews, 42,000 came back in 538. 42,000, Ezra chapter 2. 42,000 came back and they've been building homes out in the surrounding villages. Ezra chapter 11, starting in verse 25, is a list of all the villages they had been building. They built villages farther away because they knew Jerusalem is a center, uh, uh, a flashpoint for all of the hatred of the enemies of the Jews. Let's just build a quiet little village off in the corner. They've been living in all these villages around that you read in chapter 11, verses 25 to the end of the chapter. All these villages are being inhabited by the 42,000 Jews for the last 90 years. And they say, you know what? We're not rich, but we're making it. We've got our little five-room house. We've got our 17 children, Jewish families in the old days. We're doing well right where we are. You know, I'm just going to stay here. And now we've got a temple built. Now we've got the wall built and a very small population. And the Jews have just gone through... In Nehemiah chapter 8, they've gone through three months traveling back to the land and then two steady months of working every day from early in the morning until late at night with not even time to wash your clothes. And then what? Then they have a month of Bible conference with weeping and praying and reading and fasting. And they close their month of Bible conference with signing a covenant where they say, we will not fall away again. We see what's happened. Never again will we fall away. So they signed their covenant. Then, just after that, they realized, well, if we really want to follow the Lord, we've got to remember that Israel had a heritage. God chose this country. Yeah, but you know what? I'm fine. I'm, I'm a libertarian. I want freedom. Just let me have my little house in my little village and don't bother me with Israel has some grand plan for the ages. I don't want, really care about being Israelite. I care about sitting in my village, having my wife, having my, my nice little things. Just let me build my house. No, no. You signed a covenant saying you're going to remember Jehovah. And Jehovah said, I have a purpose for Israel. They are going to bless the nations. I don't want to bless the nations. I just want my house. We've had, I'll go to the temple once a year. We've got a temple now. Don't make me, don't make me lose my house again. Don't make me lose my job and my, my comfort again. Wait a minute. You signed that covenant. Israel has a heritage. They have to bless the nations. That means Jerusalem has to be inhabited and built up because all the nations are supposed to look to Israel as a country. This real estate was given to those people. And so they say, we need to build up Jerusalem again. Let's take a, let's take a, a poll on um, um, lots. Let's cast lots. We'll put everyone's name into a bowl. We'll take, of the 200 names, we'll take out 20. If your name is called, you lose your house. You lose your business. You go back to Jerusalem with no streets and no businesses and no homes. And you start again. 
for the last time. Would you have volunteered? What would you say? Well, these people did it. And that's why in verse 2, the ones who willingly offered themselves, they said, I'll do it. I signed that covenant. I don't want to lose my house. I don't want to lose my home or my business or my family. I don't want to break things up. I don't want to move everyone again. My wife finally unpacked the last box from our last move. Now I'm going to tell her, get the boxes out again, honey. Get the, get the trailer out and hook up to the donkeys. We're going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, it's dangerous. There's criminals. Well, they got a wall now. I don't care about a wall. I got my little house here. It's working just fine. And then the tears come. Sweetheart, let's, we got to do it. It's our, it's our heritage. And the people willingly move back. That's the first half of the names in chapter 11. The second half of chapter 11 is the villages where they were coming from. God wanted the entire country settled. With that as our background, this is what happens in chapter 12. Look at chapter 12 and verse number 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, now it is the time for the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. The foundations are set for religion, for security, and now they have citizens they can begin to rebuild the society of Israel, the people of God. Here it is. It took us a long time, a lot of investment. We sacrificed so much for 90 years to try to overcome the consequences of sin. For hundreds of years, we didn't worship God. But now we've paid the price. Let's start building our houses, getting things in order. We've got the religion. That was first. That was the temple in the book of Ezra. We got the wall, that was next in the book of Nehemiah, chapters 2 through 6. Now we've made our covenants, let's get going. Wait a minute, before we go, let's have a celebration. Chapter 12 is the public celebration of the completion of the infrastructure. And I'd like to draw your attention to that celebration this evening. Notice in verses 27 and onward, this amazing celebration. We'll just go through this verse by verse. In verse 27, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites out of all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to keep the dedication with what? If you have a pen, underline that word gladness, both with thanksgiving and with singing. You can underline if you want or just notice thanksgiving and singing. Gladness. We'll be underlining every form of gladness. And how do they sing? They have cymbals, psalteries, and harps. Psalteries and harps would have been stringed instruments. Verse 28. The sons of the singers gathered themselves together as both out of the plain country, round about Jerusalem, and from the villages of Netophathith, also from the house of Gilgal and the fields of Geba, Asmavath, the singers had built villages round about Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people and the gates and the wall. There are religious ceremonies that are going to be there for this great crowd. So the priests perform a purification ceremony for the entire wall. And it's connected to their history. Look down at verse 31. 
Then I brought up the princes of Judah upon the wall. I appointed two great companies of them to give thanks. You can underline that word thanks. It goes with gladness back in verse 27. After them went Hoshiah and half of the princes of Judah, Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with what? In verse 35. Trumpets. That's the fourth instrument we've seen. Back in verse 27, we saw cymbals, psalteries, and harps. Now we have trumpets. There are seven references to singing and music, and there are four different musical instruments that are mentioned. Some are brass, one is percussion, two are string. That tells me these people were artists. Do you know what happens to, uh, do you know what is required for art? Leisure time. If you are working 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., Monday, uh, Sunday to Friday, with Saturday as your Sabbath, you don't have very much time to work on a nice table or to paint the house. You don't have very much time to just make an instrument out of brass. The only way you can make a brass trumpet is if you have enough time to not only plow your field or start your shop, but then to turn around and try to make a horn out of metal. And when that one doesn't sound good, you gotta throw it away and make another one. And when that one doesn't sound good, you throw it away and make another one. It takes a lot of time to develop art. And you can't do that when you have no money to pay the bills. Which means these people were laboring very hard and they valued art at a high level. We're gonna see how high in just a moment. There are seven references to singing, four to the musical instruments. And there's even a plan for how they're going to walk. In verse 31, there are two great companies. They're going to go up one on the right-hand side of the wall by the dung gate. Look down at verse number 38. And the other company of them gave thanks, went over on the other side, and I followed after them. That's Nehemiah. So Ezra goes with one group. Nehemiah goes with the other group. Half of the people were upon the wall from beyond the tower, the furnaces, even to the broad wall. So all the people have come out and they're standing down in the, in the streets, filling the streets to watch the wall. But then half of the singers walk up on the wall on the west side and the other half walks up on the southeast side. And they're going to walk up as two singing choirs. I would have liked to have been there. Would you like to have seen that? Look at verse number 36. His brethren, Shemaiah, Azrael, Milal, Gilal, Mei, Nethanel, Judah, Hanani, with the musical instruments of who? David. Of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe before them? These are 500-year-old instruments. Caleb says it can't be. <laughs> Then you tell me what that phrase means. The musical instruments of David. Caleb talked to me privately and said, Dad, it's not possible. These were instruments made like the instruments of David. It doesn't say that in the text. Put away your pen and pick up your glasses. It says they were the music. My point is they were conserving the very best from their culture. 
They were not interested in new invention. They were interested in being faithful to what had been revealed. They said, okay, we're trying to follow the law of Moses. We know David was faithful. We know God blessed him because David introduced a choir with Asaph. If you're reading the Psalms this month, you've begun to read the Psalms of Asaph. Asaph was a choir director chosen by David. He was uniquely gifted at music, both in writing poetry and in writing music. He led the choir and he taught the musical instruments. And now these musical instruments are being used. I wonder if they had a system of musical notation. A man writing for Britain some time ago, I don't remember where I read this in. I I need to find this footnote. But I read this in one of the historical books I was reading. He said, British historians determined that a culture was civilized if it had three things. It needs to have all three things to be civilized. Number one, it needs to have buildings that are more than one story. So as soon as you have two-story buildings or more, you've begun to be civilized. Then number two, you need to be able to write down your language. If you can't write down your language, according to these British historians, you're not civilized. By civilized, they mean able to produce cities. Cities can only exist if you can have architecture that can have at least two stories, and then if you can write down your language. And then number three, can anyone guess what the third is? You already know, I think. Can anyone guess what the third one is? What's that? Very close, very close. It's, it's, you have to be able to record music. Somehow you have to be able to record music. That means the artists in your society are making songs and the songs are so good that all the people say, we can't forget that one. Somehow record it. I don't care if you chip it into rock. I don't care if you burn it into metal. I don't care if you make it out of wood. I don't care if you scratch it in ink. Somehow record that song so we can all do that again because our kids have to have that song. So if you can record music in some form or fashion, they could do it. They were recording the music. They were building their buildings. They had preserved their language. Look down in verse number 38. The other company over them gave thanks and went over against them and I after them. And the half of the people upon the wall from beyond the tower of the furnaces, even to the broad gate, verse 39, and from above the gate of Ephraim and above the old gate and above the fish gate, the tower of Hananiel and the tower of Mia, even under the sheep gate, they stood still in the prison gate. So stood the two companies of them that gave thanks in the house of God and I and the half of the rulers with me and the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Mineiamin, Mikai, Elionai, Zechariah, Hananiah with trumpets. Messiah, Shemai, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehonanan, Melchijah, Elam, Ezer. And the singers sang loud. Amen, Colin? With Jezariah, the overseer. What do we see from this? They had music. They had crowds of people. They had priests. Did you notice all the names? I read all of those names to you. They had the leaders and the elders and the priests. They had the political and religious and economic (coughs) leaders of the day all gathered together. They had dignity because dignity comes with the collection of people and the marks of civilization. 
The more people you have, the more art you have, the better architecture you have, the more you raise the dignity of a meeting. And these Jews said, we have come to honor the work of God in our midst. So we want to have all the dignity possible. They gathered together and arranged their choir. They arranged the way the choirs would walk up on the wall. They arranged the streets in which the people would stand. They arranged the elders who would lead each section. They didn't have any, anything like this on that day. Oh, where, where, where are we going? Who's doing what? Wait, what's happening here? Ah, just go up there. Ah, okay. Have you ever been to a funeral where people handle things that way? So, wait, who's leading this? Okay, let's just start. Okay, everybody. Hello, everyone. Oh, wait, wait, you're going to do it. Huh? Okay, fine. I've been to funerals like that. This was not like that. Here's the point. From verses 27 to 42. They worked very hard to bring dignity because their celebration reflected the work that God had done. God had restored them from this and that and that and that. The whole way down to here. God had done these things. God had brought them to this place. And so they labored to have all of the dignity that they could have in their celebration. That's point number one. The Jews gathered together for a celebration of what God had done after studying the Bible, after praying, after fasting, after confessing, after making a covenant, now they say, let's have a service to celebrate. And look at what God himself does. Was this just a waste of time and money? Or was God pleased with this? Does God like big shows? Let's look at verse 43. This is really the summary of the entire passage. And I'd like to show you four observations about God's gift to these people. Look at verse 43. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it will say God gave them joy. God had made them rejoice with great joy while the wives stayed at home because they weren't important. Okay, the wives came, but not the kids. They make a mess of everything. This is a family affair because God has always loved the family. And when they have this dignified celebration, God himself comes and as a gift to these people and as a token that he has forgiven their sins, he has renewed their covenant, he has not cast off his people whom he foreknew. He remembered the words of Jeremiah 90 years earlier, which said in Jeremiah 31, if the sun and the moon and the stars will move out of their courses, then maybe I could forget Israel. But as long as you look up and you see stars, as long as there's a sun in the morning, I will not forget Israel whom I chose as my people. And as a lesson for the church of God, if you were elect in Christ, according to his foreknowledge, he does not forget his people. Did we not just sing that? Did we not just sing these words? 
my name from the palms of your hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on your heart, it remains. What remains on his heart? My name in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end will endure until I bow down at your throne forever and always secure a debtor to mercy alone. That is what these people are feeling here. And God gives them assurance. He pours out assurance with a gift of joy. Let me show you four observations about this gift. Number one, the gift has a source. What is the source of the joy in verse 43? God himself. It is God who causes the people to rejoice because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, no changing, not even the shadow of a change passes over him. So if there's something good, you know it came from God. So that is why I say everything good that you enjoy in the world is from Christianity. How else could it be? James 1, verse 17, I just quoted for you. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And don't we start the Lord's Prayer with these words? Our Father. He's called a Father because fathers give. That's what they do. That is what they are by definition. They begin by giving life to their children. Mothers don't give life. They nurture that which has been given. It is fathers who give from the beginning to the end. And the reason fathers give is because the father gives. And if there's a good thing, it is given. That's what's here. And if you'll start noting that the next time you read through your Bible, you'll see that every good thing, it just pours out. It's a gift. Every time you see a good thing in the Bible, it comes as a gift. And here's my pet doctrine, which I'll reveal to you tonight. My personal belief is that every good thing is given by the Father, but only through the Son, so that nothing good could be given except in light of the cross of Christ. If you say, how can you prove that? I'm still looking for verses. (laughs) But it puts Christ at the center of the giving generosity of the Father. Our Father is full of goodness, and here he gives his people joy. He pours out joy on his people. Look at the second observation. The gift itself is joy. It not only comes from God, but it is joy in itself. The word joy is found five times, and some form of it is found five times in this verse. Rejoice, rejoice, joy, joy. I'm finding it four times. Why did I write five? I'm finding it four times here, but my notes say five. Where's it at? Rejoice, rejoice, joy. Rejoice, joy. Yeah, I didn't underline the one. Underline it right now. Five times in this verse. Then again in verse 44, there's more rejoicing. And further on, or earlier on, back in verse 27, there's gladness. Verse 31, there's giving thanks. Verse 38, there's more thanks. There's singing. What is singing but some kind of fruit of joy? Can you imagine singing without any joy? I can't imagine that. It's hard to imagine the, the concept of song 
without joy, there will be no singing in hell. God is a happy God. He enjoyed their hard work in the first couple chapters, and now he enjoys the happiness of his people. When they sang, it was a demonstration of their happiness, and that demonstration of happiness even pleased God. Did you know back in the Old Testament law, in the book of Deuteronomy, I believe it's chapter 6, it says, God punished his people because they did not serve him with joy. God threatens us that if we don't enjoy him, he'll punish us. It's not enough to serve him. You've got to like it. He's not interested in having a spouse in his house who says, fine, I'll do what you want. It's got to be happy. And doesn't every husband want that? You don't want a wife who says, I'll do what you want. <sighs> no husband wants that and no wife wants that. And, and, and the reason no husband or wife wants it is because that contradicts the whole nature of joy, which is a reciprocity. C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Four Loves, that joy is only completed when it is shared by someone who shares your love. That is, if you find happiness in something, you like chess, you're really looking for someone else who likes chess too. So you can tell him about chess and his face will light up. And if you tell someone about chess and their face doesn't light up, inside you just think, let me get away. Let me find someone whose face will light up. Right? And whatever your joy or love or hope or happiness is, you're looking for someone like that. And our brother prayed tonight about the happiness he found in this group because he knows this group is not forced to be here. When we're here, our faces all light up about the same kinds of things. That's why we like it. That's why it somehow gives us pleasure. Even though you may be exhausted and want to rest, you say, even though I want to rest, I actually just want joy more. And I get joy when I'm with people who respond the way I would respond on that same topic. And that is what we are seeing right here. God gives the joy and he receives it back. He takes happiness in their happiness, which is why he commands them to sing. And when they sing, his joy is magnified. Nehemiah had already told them when they were weeping earlier that the joy of the Lord would be their strength. Nehemiah 8 verse 10. And so their actions had been the repentance that is far better than words because in their actions, what had they done? They had actually come back and rebuilt the temple first, showing religion as priority. They rebuilt the wall saying, we're serious about this. This is a long-term solution. We are getting back to the heritage of Israel. They commit themselves for a month of Bible teaching, giving themselves time to count the cost, to pray and to repent and to fast. And then they sign a covenant. All those who can understand, then they take up lots and willingly move back to Jerusalem to build the capital city. This is a kind of joy that comes from God. And there is a kind of joy that comes from him and a kind of joy that comes from earthly pleasures. Hebrews 11 speaks about Moses who chose to endure affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a brief time. All of these things have a kind of pleasure, but it is only God's pleasure that goes on into eternity. Number three, observation number three, who receives this gift? God is the source. Joy is the gift. Who are the recipients? It's 
all the people. I love it when the Bible specifies the different members of the family. He is not content to exclude the women, which again shows us this book was written by God because ancient documents consistently remove the women either entirely from the document or from any position of dignity. Look at the Quran. In Surah 14, it's the retelling of the story of Joseph. In Surah 14, you have the retelling of the story of Joseph. And in that story, the women are made to appear like fools. Potiphar's wife is a complete fool. She's not just evil. She's stupid. And then at the end of the story, when she lies, she tells all the women around, he was so beautiful, Joseph is so beautiful that I just, I just had to, to go after him. And then all the women in town say, oh, that's not true. That's not true. So she says, oh, watch, watch. Let's go find him. And you can all look at him, inspire him. And you'll see how beautiful he is. is that, does that sound like women to you? A group of women trying to go spy on a 20-year-old? So all these women in, the surah, in surah 14 in the Quran, they all go and spy on Joseph. And when they see how beautiful they all are, do you know what the women do? They all agree with Potiphar's wife. This guy's so beautiful, he's worth sinning and, and losing everything for. And th- they all agree that. Does that sound like women to you? Okay, but then guess what they do? They all take knives and cut their hands. Why? They say because we didn't know how beautiful he was. Does that make them look... Foolish or or wise? There are no references, positive references in the Quran to any woman. Very few references at all. But there are maybe a dozen. But of those dozen, there's no positive references. And the reason is because the Quran followed all the other books. The Bhagavad Gita. I've read as much as I can find of it. I've asked all the Hindus I can find. Please give me a copy of Bhagavad Gita or tell me where I can buy it. I found little spots of it on the on internet and tried to read it. Ugh, it's hard reading, even worse than the Quran. But there was no positive references to women in the Bhagavad Gita. You look at the Christian scriptures and you have women like Abigail who said she's more clever than her husband. Wait, that would never pass in ancient writing. How'd that get in there? The people would cut it out. Well, someone not human, had a hand in the editing. In fact, he had control over it all. That's the only explanation. How can you explain the wives being included in covenants? Wives weren't included in covenants. But they were here. In chapter 10, and here again, they're included in the dedication. And Nehemiah makes sure he references them. In fact, they're all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. and the book of Numbers, chapter 17, which includes Numbers 27, I'm sorry. Numbers 27, which includes the story of the daughters of Zelophehad. These four daughters, they say, look, our dad had no boys. Our dad just died. We don't want him to lose all his property. And then his name goes away. Moses says, let me go talk to God about it. God says, hey, we care about women too. They can keep the property. You show me anything like that in any contemporary document. Can't find it. More evidence that the Bible was written by God. Well, here it is. These wives also and the children rejoice. Oh, what a wonderful thing to have the children referenced. What a wonderful thing. It's wonderful because it's true to human nature. You show me the family that doesn't care about their kids. Now, now people who write books may not care about their kids because that might just be one crazy guy. There's a lot of bad people who write books. Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, very bad man. 
He writes a bunch of books. In fact, probably most authors in the world are bad people. <laughs> but when you have a book that is supposed to gather up the collected wisdom of all the world, then it's going to have to relate to people. And real men like you and you and you love your kids and you want to have them included. More evidence that we should be family-oriented and evidence that the scriptures were given by God. The gift is given to all. And number four, fourth observation, the gift was exceptional in history. Notice this phrase in verse 43. So the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away, farther even than in Ezra when they rejoiced at the foundation of the temple. Now, not only is the temple done, not only the foundation, but the temple itself, not only the foundation and the temple, but also the wall is complete. Throughout scripture, there have been many times of joy recorded. In, Ezra, in Esther chapter eight, Esther would have happened just maybe 40 years earlier. In Esther chapter eight, the feast of Purim, there was great joy among all the Jews. In Ezra chapter three, I just referenced this one, there was joy at the foundation of the temple. In 2 Samuel chapter six, probably 30,000 people gathered to rejoice when the ark was brought back into Jerusalem. That would have been 500 years earlier with David using these same instruments. <clears throat> And in Nehemiah chapter 12, right here, there is the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. And in each of those cases that I just referenced, I'm sorry, three of those cases, in the laying of the foundation and in the bringing back of the ark and in the dedicating of the wall of the temple and in Jehoshaphat's victory of the nations in 2 Chronicles, it says there was great joy. But this one is probably the happiest time recorded in all the Bible because of the number of the people and because of what it meant. This was a recovery after hundreds of years of backsliding. This was a recovery after 90 years of rebuilding. This was a recovery when God himself gave the joy. So I want to ask you, do you know God's joy? Has he given you God's joy? Has he given you his joy? That joy commonly comes when we prepare ourselves to celebrate his works. You can do that in your private worship in the morning. You should do that each Lord's Day. You should specially do that when your church body takes the Lord's table. You should be thinking about the works of God. You should lead your family on a consistent basis to think about what God has done. Today is Mother's Day. If you didn't do it today, then do it tomorrow. Take time with your family just to make a list of all the good things God did when he gave you your mom. Take an hour and let it spill over. You can start talking about your mom, then start talking about her mom. Then start talking about your mom's sister. And if it spills over to dad, that's okay too. Start talking about the good works of God and what he has done because it is common for God to bring joy to his people when they see the works that he has done after a time of prolonged faithfulness. Let's close in prayer. Father, we ask tonight that you would give us, those who have gathered here, your joy. Cause us to see your values, your purposes, your program, your own happiness. Cause us to be taken up with your works on the earth. Help us to see how you have punished your people for their own good. And it 
in keeping with your own justice and your own prophecies. Oh, Lord Jesus, make us to know and to love the joy of God and the happiness of God. May we think about the good works of God. May we talk about the good works of God. May we thank you for your good works and giving us our wives and our children and our husbands. In Jesus' name, amen.